Welcome to Lifelines. This is John Augustine. I'm on record for stating that Louis Armstrong is the most significant figure in the history of American music. But no one, not even Scott Fitzgerald, embodied the jazz age more vividly than George Gershwin. Years ago, I read A Fine Life of Gershwin by Bay City's own Ed Jablonski, so I thought I'd try a more recent biography by Walter Rimler from the impressive series Music in American Life. And sure enough, I'm impressed by Gershwin all over again. Such energy. A spirited kid, his parents worried he'd end up in jail. Later, as a social butterfly, he would descend on a party, land on the piano stool, and play dazzling music for hours. On one concert tour, he played 28 performances in 28 cities in 28 nights, long before jet travel. And the compositions poured out of him, 250 songs before he was 27. One of his first piano teachers declared, the boy is a genius, but he wants to go for this modern stuff. I'll see that he gets a foundation in standard music first. So, young George learned Chopin and Debussy, but at night slipped off to Harlem to hear great jazz piano. When he was 21, he wrote a giant hit, Swanee, and he was launched. Four years later, he fulfilled a commitment for a serious piece for the Paul Whiteman Band by writing Rhapsody in Blue. In three weeks, in the same year, his first Broadway musical songs, which made a star of Fred Astaire. That show included Lady Be Good, Fascinating Rhythm, and The Man I Love. Not bad for the first time out. You couldn't write about Gershwin without his brother Ira, whose incredibly clever lyrics dressed up many a Gershwin tune. When the boys hit it big, they lived in adjoining penthouses and saw each other every day. Ira was the shy boy who preferred books to parties and never learned to drive, fearful that the other drivers would honk at him. By the 1930s, George was an international star, the charismatic king of Broadway. He was making more money than Babe Ruth and President Hoover combined. His radio show alone paid $2,000 a week, a fortune in the Depression. His last serious musical featured Embraceable You, I Got Rhythm, But Not For Me, and I'm Biding My Time, all in one show. But even though he had stretched himself with compositions like American in Paris, he worried that he was not doing right by his great gift. So he turned to the most challenging project of his career. George had read the novel Porgy by DeBose Hayward in 1926, dreamed of its potential, and hesitated. Seven years later, he signed a contract to compose music for the opera, Porgy and Bess. It would be, says Rimmler, his great adventure, the cast and directors he assembled, the greatest collection of talent in Broadway history. Hayward's contribution, says Stephen Sondheim, was the finest set of lyrics in the history of American musicals. Ira chipped in with the words, for it ain't necessarily so. But Porgy failed in New York, despite desperate cutting of script and ticket prices. The critics were lukewarm, including Virgil Thompson, who nonetheless whispered to a friend that Gershwin was the greatest composer in America. Praise from Caesar. The Broadway crowd wasn't ready for an opera, and vice versa. Though the show gradually became more popular, the full score and production weren't performed until 1976. Gershwin retreated to Hollywood, reunited with Astaire, and composed immortal movie scores, including Nice Work If You Can Get It and A Foggy Day. But the end was near. His last great song, ironically, was Our Love Is Here To Stay, composed despite excruciating headaches. When his brain tumor was finally diagnosed, the finest surgeon in the country was on a fishing trip, 
so President Roosevelt ordered a Coast Guard cutter to pick the doctor up, a police escort to the airport, and a chartered plane to Los Angeles, but all for naught. George Gershwin, who had filled the American songbook, was dead at 38. This program has been Lifelines. I'm John Augustine.